0: Welcome back to our summer series. It's called God's Unsecret Identity. And we're gonna unfold why we're calling it that as we go along in this summer series. And one of the quick reasons and one of the quick understandings and explanations is that God does not wanna hide himself from his children. He wants his identity known, but he does hide himself from those who have rejected him. So I want to invite you, as we look at these attributes of God, these character qualities of God, week after week, to really search them. I hope that you do more than just watch these sermons. I hope you get into the Word of God, and I hope you ask God to reveal that character throughout the week. You're going to begin to see it over and over in ways, I think and I trust, that you've never seen before. Well, we're going to be looking at one this week that is absolutely beyond our capability of fully understanding. God is holy. He is holy. And we are to be in awe of that. And as unthinkable as it might seem, I mean, this is amazing. We are to imitate His holiness. I mean, how do we imitate what is beyond our capability of understanding? Well, our aim today is to know better what it means that God is holy and to understand the implications of this attribute to God's people who are called to be holy. I'm gonna give you four simple points. We're gonna be in Isaiah chapter six. I hope you're turning there already. If you're not there yet, while I begin to talk, can you get your Bible? Open up to Isaiah chapter six, really easy. Go to the middle of your Bible, hang a right, and you're gonna get to Isaiah in just a few books. Isaiah chapter six. Here's the first thought that I want us to chew on. To be holy, because we're answering that question, if God is holy and we are to be holy, how do we be holy? What does that actually mean? Well, our first thought is to be holy is to understand that God is in a status by himself. He is in a status by himself, Judah is the southern part of Israel. There are 10 tribes to the north. It's called northern Israel by the time of Isaiah. And then you've got Judah, which is southern Israel, two tribes. So Judah has a king. Israel, the northern Israel, has their king. And Judah's king was Uzziah. And he died at the opening of Isaiah chapter 6, we are informed of that fact. He had reigned well for 52 years. He had reigned for 52 years, and Judah had experienced peace. This is a godly king. Assyria was knocking on the door of northern Israel, and, and Judah's southern Israel, Judah's uh, the king of, of uh, rather Judah's king who is Uzziah he has died so we've got two big calamitous upheavals the king of Judah had died the superpower Assyria is coming against Israel not kindly they're looking to conquer the northern part of Israel the whole world to Isaiah was an upheaval and God came to this young man I've already told you his name his name is Isaiah the name of the book and God gave him a vision. One person said, I think, wistfully and insightfully when the outlook is bleak, try the uplook. And that's what we ought to do as the children of God. When things get difficult, think of our world right now. Quite a lot of upheaval going on. We ought to be praying. We ought to be looking to our God and his word. Well, when the outlook is bleak, try the uplook, And this is indeed what God does for Isaiah. And I want to introduce it in chapter 6, verse 1. Here we go. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple." What do we need when God shakes the world but to see our God on his throne? The Apostle John tells us in John chapter 12 verse 41 that the person, the being that Isaiah sees on this throne is none other than Jesus. We are seeing in the Old Testament the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Before Jesus took on flesh, this is Jesus in the Old Testament. He is the Lord. That's a name for God that means Adonai. It's an incredibly powerful name. It's the sovereign God name. the, The one who is absolute in power. So are you catching this? Isaiah, in the midst of all this upheaval is given a vision by God of Jesus, who is the Lord, who is Adonai, who is absolute in power, who is sovereign. And the point was clear. Despite all of what was happening in Israel, all of what was happening in the world, God was on his throne. He was ruling over all. God is sovereign. And that means that he is always in control of everything. And he brings about his purpose and his will. That's what it means that God is, is sovereign. He's in control of everything, and he's always bringing about his purpose and his will. Now, I want to really be honest with you. I, I cannot understand how anyone, whether they're a Christian or, an, or not a Christian— can be anchored in this life with no view or a low view of God's sovereignty. I don't know how they make it through life. That attribute has become so precious to me. Psalm 103 verse 19 says this, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. God is sovereign. And if you look at verse 1, you notice that Isaiah sees first Jesus, and then he sees the train of his robe, and it fills the temple. uh, The kings of the ancient world, their robes had trains. Think of a bride on her wedding day with a long train on her gown that flows behind her. The train of the robe of Jesus flowed, and it filled the temple. It's a symbol of the king's glory his rule and his majesty in fact verse 3 his glory fills the whole earth it says so we've got this incredible picture of Jesus sovereign the Lord Adonai absolute in power sitting on his on his throne and his robe the train of it flowing and filling the temple And I want to ask you, Christian, are you struggling with fear and anxiety in this time of upheaval, in our time of being shaken? I want you to meditate on this heavenly scene. I want those emotions to come face-to-face with our sovereign God. And I will tell you what's going to happen. They will burn up and they will be eradicated like a mist in the rising sun. Fear and anxiety cannot exist in the belief of God's sovereignty. Jesus Christ is on his throne. He is in control. He has this He's got it under control. His glory will be magnified. And then the vision goes on. Look at verse two. Above Jesus, above him, stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew, he hovered. We've got Jesus ruling on his throne. And angelic beings called seraphim are attending to him. And they've got six wings. And look at what he said. Two of them are covering their face, covering their eyes. As majestic as these creatures are, even they cannot look on the pure, holy brilliance of Jesus Christ They are like Moses, who, when he approached the burning bush, he covered his face. And these seraphim, they've got two more wings, and those wings are now covering their feet. You've got to understand, in the ancient world, bare feet were associated with either immodesty or filthiness. Even these sinless, angelic beings called seraphim, so high, so lofty, so beautiful, so awesome, they could not compare with the unbridled purity of Jesus, who is infinitely above all of his creation, even above these majestic, angelic beings." And with two wings they flew and they're, they're echoing back and forth between them. Their praises to God and while they do the, the doorposts, the thresholds below the doorposts in, in the temple, they are shaking. They are shaking with the thunderous weight of their voices and they're crying out, echoing back and forth, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The Lord of hosts, it's a beautiful name for God. Jehovah Sabaoth means the Lord of all might, the commander of all armies in both heaven and earth. It's a name for Jesus in the Old Testament in this vision. It was a name that actually motivated Martin Luther to write one of his most famous hymns, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Yet even before calling out this great name, Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the seraphim, exalt Jesus, holy, holy, holy. Now, if you're looking at the English Standard Version Bible, as I am, then you're going to see an exclamation mark at the end of chapter 6, verse 3, right after the word Glory. That was put there by editors for emphasis, the ancient writers for both Hebrew and Greek. They did not have devices grammatically like exclamation marks and underlining and italicies and bold. What they did was they emphasized using superlatives or reputation. So repeating something three times, it's the only time in the Old Testament you'll see it. Repeating something three times, it's the strongest form of emphasis that's possible in the Bible. Parents, we know this because when we're frustrated or when we're afraid for our kids, we say, no, no, no. We say it very quickly. That's for emphasis. That's our emphatic way of telling them to stop something. God is holy. Holy. Holy, and his holiness is immeasurable. But what does that word holy even mean? I mean, I would imagine if you stopped somebody in the streets and you asked them what the word holy means, you're going to get a lot of different answers. Do we actually even know what it means? At the very root of this word, you've got to hold on to this because the word holy is all through the Bible, both Old Testament and New and whenever you encounter the word, what, what English word needs to come to mind is this. Apartness. Apartness. It means to be separate. It means that God is apart from all of his creation. Qualitatively, he is infinitely above even the best of his creation. He is one of a kind. He's in a category all by himself. He is apart from all of us the holiness of god means he is set apart from all created beings in his majesty and his perfect moral purity he's unable to be reduced to what is common or the word that we're familiar with what is secular in the temple in fact they had all kinds of articles that were called Holy. In fact, the tongs that they used to put the coals or the animal sacrifices on the altar grate, those tongs were called holy. That just meant that they could only be used for that single purpose. They were set apart from any other tongs. These are the tongs for the altar. That's the only set of tongs you use, and they will not be used for anything else. There is an apartness to it. I want you to think of the Holy Scriptures. That means that the Bible is separate from, apart from, and beyond any other book. Think holy matrimony. It means that a man and a woman are separated from any other relationships, their previous romantic ones, even their family relationships, and they are joined together unto themselves for the rest of their lives. That is holy matrimony. God is holy He is ever above. He is separate from all creation. He is unstained by sin. He has no evil thoughts. He has never had an evil thought from eternity past to eternity future. If somehow you could put God under some spiritual electron microscope, you'd find no trace of impurity. You wouldn't find even a scintilla of moral filth. You wouldn't find even one evidence of wrongdoing. Why? Because he is holy, holy, holy. He's in a category by himself. He shares company with no other. He's not an improved version of angels. He is holy God. This is why, friends, we should never, and I hope you hear this, we should never utter oh my God, what a great movie that was, or oh my God, what a great meal that was. We're never to do that. That's the point of the third commandment that God gave, and it goes like this. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, meaning don't reduce it to what is common. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. We must not bring God's holy name down to what is secular, what is common, what rolls off of our tongues without thoughts, without reflection. We keep his name holy. It is above every other name. It's in a category apart from all others. Well, we just looked pretty closely at the first thought, and that first thought was to be holy is to understand that God is in a status all by himself. But it goes on, and we're going to learn this secondly, that God, if if rather to be holy, to be holy, is to be horrified by sin. Look at verse 1 again at the very beginning. In the year that King Uzziah had died, I already mentioned this the king of judah was a remarkable king until the end and all of a sudden all of his success went to his head if you wanted to look at this it's in second chronicles chapter 26 it says this in verse 16 but when uzziah was strong he grew proud to his destruction For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. That word unfaithful means he violated his duty. He failed to give God the worship that God deserves. He failed to hold himself in the station in which he belonged. He failed to hold God in the station that God belongs. He grew proud, and what a sneaky thing pride is. Friends, we should never, we should never ever declare ourselves humble, for pride disorients us, it blinds us to ourselves. I have a friend who often tells me that he struggles with pride, yet he's not crushed by that fact. He's not broken by it. He's not undone. Therefore, he really isn't repentant. And his struggle really isn't a struggle. I've got another friend with diabetes whose feet have gone numb, and he can't feel them anymore, and he's, he's tripping, and he's falling all the time. And this is what pride does. Pride goes before the fall. It numbs. It, it numbs our conscience. It causes us to trip and to fall over ourselves. And this is what happened to King Uzziah. You see, it was pride that moved him to reach for what he was not allowed to have... I hope some of this is echoing in your mind. It's the same thing from Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, just like Uzziah, they didn't want limitations. Can you think Uzziah for a moment? He's got 52 years of being the king. He's done a really good job. His kingdom is successful. The northern kingdoms are falling apart, but his kingdom is doing great. It was rock solid. And all of that pride went to his head. If I want to go into the temple, and if I want to offer the sacrifice to God on the altar myself, then I ought to be able to do it. But he wasn't allowed. That was a job of the priests. He wanted to be without the need for a mediator, which was a priest. He wanted to make atonement for himself, he wanted to offer it himself to the Lord. Now I need you to put on your gospel eyes and get on your gospel ears for a moment and I want you to understand that Uzziah began to be filled with self-righteousness. This is the person who grows confident and your own success, and your own goodness, and how pleased the Lord must be with me. Look how well I have served him. I deserve glory. I deserve credit. I deserve the power. And this is where pride takes us. And it is absolutely deadly to our spiritual life for God's holiness and our sinfulness are incompatible. I recently read that doctors can now use a handheld scanner that shines a laser on your skin and can tell you if that skin spot or that mole is cancerous. What an amazing leap in technology! All by the use of lights, all by the use of lasers. But what, re- what reveals the moral cancer? called sin. What's going to light that up? I'm going to tell you what lights that up. It's called the holiness of God. And it does so with brilliant, painful clarity in the life of Isaiah. Can you look at verse five? And I said, woe is me. He has seen this vision. Jesus is on his throne. It is Adonai. He is Jehovah Sabaoth. He is absolute in power. He is sovereign. He is holy, 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 infinitely above even the seraphim. And what happens with Isaiah? Woe is me for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah suddenly, in seeing the holiness and the exaltation of Jesus Christ, suddenly sees his own sin clearly where he could not see it before. See, if you wanted to come up to me and say, Pastor Tim, I really want to encourage you to look inward and see your sin. I lack the ability to do it. You lack the ability to do it. We must invite God to examine and to reveal, and the holiness of God will reveal that sin. And not only his own personal sin, it reveals national sins. The sins of his people and that knowledge ruins him. He says, I am lost. It means he was wrecked. He was destroyed by this. And he pronounces a curse on himself. Woe is me. That's a curse. He's saying, I am a wretched, cursed sinner. I am no better than my fellow Israelites. For God would later say in chapter 29 of uh, of Isaiah, verse 13, this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. I am a man of unclean lips. Isaiah realized he was a hypocrite. He spoke one thing, but his heart wanted another. And suddenly he sees this deadly condition and he knows there is simply nothing that he himself can do about it. And it moves us quickly to our third thought. To be holy is to be made pure. Last week I had an annoying smudge on one of the lenses of my glasses So I took my glasses off and I used what I thought was a clean finger to clean it. But as you can guess, all I did was make the smudge worse. That's what it's like when you try to clean up your spiritual act by your own effort. That's what happens when you think that your good works, that your own self-righteousness, that your own efforts and your own merit can make you right and clean and pure before God. All it does is smudge your soul. It makes everything worse. What is morally dirty cannot be used to make anyone morally clean. Isaiah sees that he is undone. He is a sinner, a sinner all the way to the bottom of his soul. And he realizes there is nothing within him that can clean it. Only perfect purity can. And there is not within any human being other than Jesus that quality. If we are to be made pure, it must come from someone outside of us if you follow the story in second chronicles with king uzziah you'll find that he was not only blinded with pride by his accomplishments but because of it god struck him with leprosy it's a near perfect horrific symbol of the moral decay called sin And Isaiah saw that the same moral condition that Uzziah had in his body, he himself had in his heart. He was a sinner. And he came to the end of himself. He came to the point where he was morally bankrupt and the bottom of his soul dropped out from beneath him. Martin Luther said this, Here, The bottom falls out of all merit, all powers and abilities of reason or the free will men dream of, and it all comes to nothing before God. Christ must do and must give everything. Christian, we are saved, we are made righteous only by the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, not by our own effort, not by our own works, not by growing up in church, not by having a family that is a Christian family. That means nothing for the salvation of your soul. We must not depend on ourselves or our sin grows worse. And Isaiah chapter six is about to show us God's very power to make us clean. To purify us all for himself. Look what it says in verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. It was a coal taken from the altar the place of sacrifice and it touched the lips of isaiah and his guilt was taken away because his sin was atoned for from the place of sacrifice comes the means to make us holy the place of sacrifice christian is the cross And Peter echoes this command for us to be holy, for God is holy in 1 Peter chapter 1. And then he explains how on earth can we even be made holy? And he says this, God paid a ransom to save you. And the ransom he paid was not mere gold and silver. He didn't pay money. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. A person is only made holy by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The very moment that a person believes in Jesus. The very moment that the person comes to the cross, the place of sacrifice, and they come there broken, at the end of themselves, miserable in their spiritual poverty, realizing that they are a sinner, realizing that they cannot atone for it in themselves. That very moment they cry out for salvation and God saves that person and makes that person holy. And this is what Isaiah did, and God made him holy, and now we're going to see in our fourth and final thought the effect of holiness in his life. To be holy is to want more than anything to serve God. Now, I would imagine, Christian, you're watching this message, you're hanging in there with me, you're hopefully intrigued by this great vision, and you're agreeing and you're nodding with everything so far, here's the point where I'm thinking some of us stop nodding. See, holy is as holy does. I know that sounds like something a godly Forrest Gump might say, but it is true. Holiness is the cry of the heart that says to God, use me. Holiness is not just a desire. It's not just a heart that has something new that it wants. It's the heart cry of a recreated being that has become or been made repurposed for God. A holy person wants nothing more than to be used by God, to be serving God. And we see this in verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Isaiah says... Whom shall I send? And who will go for us, Is it the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Then I said, Isaiah says, here I am. Send me. Now, it would be a really grave error if somehow you are imagining Jesus standing up on his throne and putting his hand over his eyes and peering out over the earth, trying to find somebody that will actually do a job that I've got to get done. That's not what's happening here. Isaiah is going to later realize in chapter 49, the Lord called me from the womb, from the, from the body of my mother he named my name. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. There's a very interesting heresy called open theism, came really popular in the 80s. Clark Pinnock, Sanders, Gregory Boyd, who is still alive. It believes that God really cannot see the future. That's their explanation for how evil things can happen. So they get God off the hook. Well, he didn't know it was coming. And what they teach and what they preach is that God, while he does not know the future, he's just really good at reacting really quickly and still getting what he wants done, done. Well, if you've got the theology that God looks down the halls of time and sees those who are going to say yes to Christ and then says, well, then you just, you're gonna say yes, then I'm going to choose you. You've got a little bit of open theism in your theology. What we've heard here in chapter 49, Isaiah is not even born. He's still in his mom's body when God chose him. So Jesus is not up on the throne trying to find somebody that's going to do a job that he wants to get done. He came to Isaiah. He gave Isaiah this vision. He brought about the completion of the call that he gave to Isaiah when he was not even yet born. And he put his finger on him and said, you are the man. And he gave Isaiah the ability to respond in holiness and say yes. You see, God set Isaiah apart for a special, unique purpose. And Christian, he has done the very same thing for you. To be holy is to know that God has called you and glorified you and purified you, or rather will glorify you, but he has purified you, and he has set you apart for him, and life is just not worth living unless we are living it out for his purposes and will. See, that's what it means to be holy as God is holy. To be holy is to have a constant prayer, Uttering to God your will and not my own. It is to awaken every day, yielding all of ourselves to God again. I am your servant. Send me, use me. Whatever divine appointments that we talked about last week. God, I'm asking you to send me to those people. And use me to do the very work that you want done. See, it is the certainty that because of faith in Jesus Christ, Peter's right, who writes in chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim, here's your job, the excellencies of Christ, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what holiness does. Well, let me ask you a question. Whom have you proclaimed the excellencies of God to in the past day? Or in the past week, or the past month, or the past year? Have you ever proclaimed to somebody that desperately needs to hear about God? Have you ever proclaimed his excellencies? That's why he saved you. That's why he has made you holy, to set you apart exclusively for his purposes purified consecrated entirely for him and your response and my response is to say with Isaiah I am here send me Christian our job has been given to us by God so, in your hearts, Peter said, honor Christ the Lord as holy, set apart, infinitely above, in a category of Himself, pure, dazzling in His brilliance, majestic, powerful, on the throne. His train of his robe filling the earth so that the glory of God is saturating every square inch of creation. Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Christian, you have been chosen for a higher life, To fulfill God's plan for you. Will you live that out? Or will you be a tragic story like King Uzziah, who for almost all of his 52 years was one of the most godly kings of Judah, until pride filled his heart. And he no longer became usable by God. You shall be holy, for I am holy. It is to be holy as God is holy, to be separated, purified by God, dedicated entirely to his service. Would you pray with me and ask God to cultivate in your heart the very same desire and response of holiness that was in Isaiah's. Let's pray for that together. Father, we ask, Lord, that if you have to fill us with a vision like the one that Isaiah was given, Lord, do it. It will terrify us. It will ruin us. It will wreck us. But Father, maybe we need to be wrecked so that we can live holy lives. Would you show us just how high and lifted up you are? Would you show us just how infinitely beyond all of creation you are will you show us how separate and apart you are qualitatively that nobody not even the most incredibly dazzlingly brilliant angelic beings can compare to you you're infinitely above even them and would you impress on us that we cannot clean our dirty souls and if we have not yet been broken and come to the cross, the place of sacrifice, the place where Jesus died and the ransom was given and our guilt taken away and our sins atoned for, if we have not yet come there to the cross, Lord, let us flee to it. Let us not even tarry for a second Because you hold all life, and your glory fills the earth. And why would we not want to be with you? Lord, for anyone that has not yet come to that cross and and been broken, Father, let them cry out for their salvation. And Father, hear them, and let today be the day of their salvation. And make them Holy as you are holy and separate them out from the world, out from the common and the secular, the people that are living for what this earth can bring and put them into the kingdom of light and put them into the nation that is royal and a holy nation, a royal people, a people for your possession, your family, and teach us, teach those new Christians, Lord, how to say, here I am, send me. For you have purified us by the blood of Christ, and we are yours. We are your blood-bought possession, and our lives are rightfully yours to command. That's holiness. And Father, may we be the holy people of God, and may this world take notice of the church. We love you. We thank you. We thank you for Jesus, who has made all of this possible. And it's his glorious name that we pray in. Amen. Amen.